When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Fingers numb around the range, you can hear a lone wolf howl. Four days in the saddle, still you don't know where you've been. You only know that you can't go home again. Two men dead in Callisville by the quickness of your hand. For a fool's gold It was gold they never had Oh, the whiskey and the women Create a most deceptive blend You played your cards, now you can't Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of American Outlaw by Anthony Cobb. Anthony, born and raised in Finley, Ohio, is currently living in Australia, and he's our featured Ohio music artist tonight. So stick around to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you more about them, let you listen to that entire song. And if you are a musical artist in or from Ohio, let us feature your music as well. Don't be shy. Just write us at feedback at ohiomystery.com and we'll make it happen. Now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us, as always, is our storyteller and journalist who spent some 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. Was God himself intervening to keep Eddie Rickenbacker alive? In his autobiography, Rickenbacker said he thought so. He'd had so many misadventures as a youth falling 12 feet into a cistern as a toddler, having to be rescued from a runaway car in a quarry, falling from a tree into unconsciousness. He walked away from several brushes with death. As a young man, he became one of the country's top race car drivers, a career that subjected him to somersaults in the air and crashes through fences as he worked to set a world speed record. In World War I, he became America's top combat ace, collecting more victories than any other pilot while reviving stalled planes, maneuvering damaged ones, and dodging a constant barrage, all in primitive early machines that didn't even give him the benefit of a parachute. As the head of Eastern Airlines, he was a passenger on a plane that crashed and killed both pilots and five passengers. But he survived. During World War II, on a tour of air bases in the Pacific, yet another plane he was on went down, this time stranding him at sea for 24 days in a rubber raft. So let's call this a mystery of how a man who spent an entire lifetime in harm's way Live to the ripe old age of 82. This is the remarkable story 
of Eddie Rickenbacker. Edward Rickenbacker was born in 1890 in Columbus, Ohio, the third of seven children born to German-Swiss immigrants. His dad, Wilhelm, was a laborer who worked in local breweries and for street paving crews. His mom, Lizzie, did other people's laundry. By the time Eddie turned three, the family had settled into a small home on Livingston Avenue at the edge of the city limits. Eddie was a many-layered young fellow. He worked hard. Before and after school, he helped in the garden, fed the family's chickens, goats, and pigs, delivered the newspaper, and scavenged goods to sell to the junk store. He gave most of the money to his mom. But later, he would also describe himself as the black sheep of the family, always pushing boundaries. He became the leader of a small group of mischievous boys who called themselves the Horsehead Gang. He smoked Bull Durham tobacco, and he often played hooky from school. And then there was that sensitive side. He loved painting watercolors of flowers and landscapes, and for a time thought he might pursue it as a career. Now, Eddie was growing up in an age when cars and planes were first making their appearances, and he developed a passion for engineering. He and his buddies built push carts long before soapbox derby cars became popular. Once he fitted a bike with an umbrella to see if it would float off a friend's barn roof. It didn't. He seemed to have no filter when it came to danger, He once ran into a burning school building to retrieve his winter coat and almost didn't make it back out. He fell out of a walnut tree and was knocked unconscious. He took a roller coaster ride in a quarry cart and sliced his leg open. He had to be rescued by his brother twice from a passing coal car. When Eddie was much, much older, he would look back at those close calls and become convinced God had been saving him for a higher purpose. Eddie's childhood came to an abrupt end when he was 14 years old. His father was on a lunch break with his street crew when a man came up asking for handouts. It grew into a confrontation during which the man hit Wilhelm in the head with a level. Eddie's father spent six weeks in a coma before dying from the injury. The man who struck him went to prison, and Eddie dropped out of school and went to work full-time. He sampled a variety of jobs, even tried his hand at stone-cutting, where he made his father's grave marker. Then he landed a job that sealed his destiny. He became a mechanic at the Oscar Lear Automobile Company at 4th and Gay Streets, where he could pursue his love of moving machines. Chief Engineer Lee Freyer took Eddie under his wing. And when Freyer moved on to the Columbus Buggy Company as its chief testing engineer, he took the 16-year-old Eddie with him as an assistant. By the age of 19, Eddie was directing the Columbus Buggy's operation in Omaha, Nebraska, in charge of six men who were selling the company's cars in four states. 
he also started entering races to draw attention to the company's cars. He was good, too good to remain a salesman. He started racing professionally. He ranked in the top 10 racers in the country and then the top five. In 1914, in Daytona, Florida, he even set a then-world record of 134 miles per hour. He became a national figure, earning the nickname Fast Eddie. In 1914, the Los Angeles Times did a story on 24-year-old Fast Eddie and got a little creative with the facts. They called him Baron Rickenbacker and said he was the disowned son of a Prussian noble. That proved to be a little problematic because the world was on the cusp of World War I. The Prussians, of course, were the Germans, and the Germans were the bad guys. When Eddie later signed on to the British Sunbeam racing team and traveled to England to work on the development of his new car, Scotland Yard was on him before he left the boat. Suspecting he might be a spy, the Yard kept eyes on him around the clock for the six weeks he was in London. Well, Eddie was thinking about the war, too, but not because he wanted to join the Germans. From his hotel, he watched the Royal Flying Corps flying over the Thames and thought that's where he would want to be if the United States entered the war. Now keep in mind, the Wright brothers had flown their first plane barely more than a decade earlier. World War I would become the first widespread use of planes in a conflict. When Eddie got back home, he went to Washington to propose his idea for a new air squadron composed of race car drivers and mechanics. They were, after all, experts in speed and engines and maneuverability. But military officials wanted college-educated men for the country's new aviation branch. When America finally joined the Great War in April of 1917, Eddie was invited to the front in France to be a driver for military officials. It wasn't what he had hoped for, but it was an opening in a door, and Eddie took full advantage of it. When he was asked to become the chief engineer at the military flight school, he agreed in exchange for some flight training. He was given 25 hours of instruction in the air. Then he set about doing the job he agreed to do, constructing the U.S. Air Service's pursuit training facility. Oh, how he hated watching those Ivy League college men come in for flight training. He resented their cocky attitude. They saw him as a simpleton and scorned his working-class manner. But Eddie stole every moment he could to stand in the back during lectures, and he used his spare time to take airplanes up to practice the maneuvers he had learned about. He soon found an ally in Lieutenant Reed Chambers, who allowed him to attend gunnery school In January of 1918, it was the missing piece he needed to become a combat pilot. Eddie made his first sortie 
as a U.S. combat pilot on April the 13th. Two weeks later, he shot down his first enemy plane. By May 28, he claimed his fifth victory, the number required to become an ace. He recorded his sixth victory two days later, but then Eddie fell sick with an ear infection, a bad one. It grounded him for three months. Then he was back in the air, adding up the kills. His supervisors were so impressed with his inventive strategies in the air, they made him a captain and put him in command of the 94th, a squadron that had really been struggling. Captain Rickenbacker wanted to show his men he would lead by example. To underscore his point, the next morning he took a plane to the front lines over Billy, France. There, he encountered a squadron of seven German planes. Undeterred by the odds and confident in his attack strategy, Eddie dived on them, shooting two of them down. Years later, he would receive the Medal of Honor for his effort that day and the gallantry of overcoming seven-to-one odds. The 94th Squadron recovered well under his command, and he himself brought down 15 more aircraft in the final six weeks of the war. It gave him a total of 26 victories. That wasn't a guess. To be credited with taking out an enemy plane, there had to be witnesses, another pilot, someone on the ground, the physical evidence of ground wreckage. If you didn't have that, it didn't happen. And Eddie had faced many death-defying moments as he rose to the top. He returned from one mission with a fuselage filled with bullet holes and half of a propeller. On another mission, there was a bullet hole in his helmet. Yet another time, he brought down a plane by colliding with it. While the German aircraft spun downward, Eddie was able to recover his craft and sail away. And so it was that despite his late entry into the Flying Corps and his extensive grounding for illness, Eddie Rickenbacker became America's ace of aces. His 26 victories would remain a record until World War II, and it earned him the Distinguished Service Cross a record eight times. So Eddie returned to America a war hero. He was welcomed in New York City by the Secretary of War and 600 friends and admirers, including some who had been shuttled in from Columbus. In Los Angeles, they threw him a parade. He wrote his memoir of the war and went on a speaking tour to raise money for Liberty Bonds to help pay off the country's war debt. Rickenbacker was discharged from the Army Air Service with the rank of major in 1919, but he never used that title. He wanted to be remembered as a captain, the title he'd earned in the air, and most folks called him Captain Eddie the rest of his life. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. 
Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. After the war, Eddie returned to his roots, car design. He helped develop an auto called the Rickenbacker, which was unveiled in 1922 and promoted and sold by the Rickenbacker Motor Company. It was also during this time that one of America's most eligible bachelors got hitched. Eddie met Adelaide Durant before the war in Los Angeles, where she was married to a racing competitor and a man so abusive that she got a hysterectomy to ensure she would bear him no children. Eddie met her again in 1921 and was smitten. She got a divorce, they married, and spent a seven-week honeymoon in Europe. They adopted two boys, David in 1925 and William in 1928, and settled in New York City. In 1927, Eddie bought the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, and operated it for nearly 15 years. But he never took his eyes off the sky. He joined the leadership of General Motors, which put him in charge of a fledgling airline company. And yada, 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 by 1935, he was the owner of Eastern Airlines, which he built into one of the major players in the growing passenger airline industry. Now, It was while he was traveling for Eastern Airlines business in 1941 when Eddie was in a plane crash that almost took his life. He was a passenger on a Douglas DC-3 that fell out of the night sky outside Atlanta, Georgia. Seven people were killed, including both pilots. Eddie was soaked in fuel and trapped in the wreckage. No one even knew the plane had gone down in the forested area until a survivor hiked through the pine trees to reach a payphone and call for help. The other eight survivors had to spend the night in that metal tomb until rescuers could reach them. When an ambulance finally got Eddie and took him to the emergency room, he was presumed all but dead. He heard a physician tell the trauma team to leave him for now and work on those with a real chance at surviving. And so Eddie hovered between life and death for 10 days. It took him months in the hospital to recover from injuries that ranged from dozens of broken and smashed bones to an eye that had popped from its socket. But recover he did. 
Now, the U.S. entered World War II later that year, and when Rickenbacker recovered enough to get out of the hospital, he played his role, touring training bases in America and England to rally the troops. He used his own Eastern Airlines to transport munitions across the Atlantic to the British. And he worked with both the U.S. Army Air Force and Britain's Royal Air Force to try and improve bombing strategy. And then, barely a year after that crash in Atlanta, Eddie used up another of his nine lives. It was October of 1942, and Eddie was on a tour of air bases in the Pacific. He was in a bomber known as the Flying Fortress, when the plane and its crew of eight strayed off course and ran out of gas. They were forced to ditch in a remote part of the Central Pacific. The 52-year-old Rickenbacker and the eight members of the crew separated into three life rafts. Over the next 24 days, they drifted thousands of miles from where they had landed. Several of the crew had injuries, Rickenbacker himself was still suffering from his earlier plane crash. They ran out of food on the third day. On the eighth day, a seagull landed on Eddie's head. (laughs) I can almost picture him looking up and saying, Thanks, God. He snagged it with his hand, and they tore it up and used it for fishing bait. They lived on rainwater when they could get it, and fish. Rickenbacker thought the creator was looking out for him again when he and the crew found they could even catch fingerling fish with their bare hands. One crewman didn't make it. He was suffering from dehydration and couldn't resist drinking seawater. It killed him, and he was buried at sea. The U.S. Army and Navy sent patrol planes out to look for the crew while people around the world waited for word of the fate of the famous flying ace. After a couple of weeks, they were prepared to call it off and pronounce Eddie dead. But Eddie's wife pleaded with the recovery team to try for one more week. And out of respect for his long and brave service to his country, they agreed. The seven survivors on the rubber rafts decided to split up in the hopes of increasing their chances of finding help. One rode off by himself and was rescued on day 23. Three others happened to cross a small inhabited island. The boat that Rickenbacker and two others were in was spotted by a patrol plane on November the 13th. The crew credited Rickenbacker the only civilian among them, for assuming leadership, encouraging them, and frankly, browbeating and humiliating them into hanging on. As for Eddie, he was right back in the thick of it soon enough. The next year, in 1943, he went on an intelligence-gathering mission to the Soviet Union. He provided the Russians with technical assistance for their American aircraft, In return, he came home with a lot of knowledge about Soviet defense strategies and capabilities and even memorized a map showing the locations of all major Soviet military units. After the war, 
Rickenbacker continued as CEO of Eastern Airlines until 1959. In retirement, he and his wife Adelaide traveled extensively. In 1973, Eddie took Adelaide to Switzerland seeking a special medical treatment for her. But he fell sick himself, first with a stroke and then pneumonia. He died July the 23rd in Zurich. His body was returned to Columbus, Ohio, and he was buried at Green Lawn Cemetery. Adelaide tried living without him for four years. She was completely blind by then. Her health was poor and getting worse, and she never stopped grieving. In 1977, at the age of 90, she shot and killed herself at the home the couple had shared in Key Biscayne, Florida. She was returned to Columbus and buried next to her husband. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. Also, like, subscribe, leave a good comment, and tell a friend. That is the best way to help us grow. Ohio Mysteries is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Head on over to evergreenpodcast.com to check out more podcasts from the Evergreen Group. You can also see us featured on KillerPodcasts.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. Anthony Cobb is number nine in a family of ten siblings from Findlay, Ohio. His musical journey probably started in 1970 when his brother Tom returned home from Vietnam. Tom brought with him a Creedence Clearwater Revival album, and Anthony was inspired to pick up a guitar. He's played in several bands over the years and found a regular recording partner in his buddy, Kevin Smoody. Early on, some of their songs were picked up by college radio stations. Eventually, Anthony met his future wife and moved to Queensland, Australia to be with her. He's still making music. Some of his songs are even featured on Australian country stations. The song we're featuring tonight is An American Outlaw. It was written in one of those special moments where Anthony picked up the guitar and the lyrics started flowing, and in less than 30 minutes, the first draft was done. His partner, Kevin, added a few other instruments of his own over the track, and voila, a song about free will and choosing the moral path. So let's have another listen to An American Outlaw by Anthony Cobb. Enjoy, and we'll see you here next week for another episode. Ohio Mysteries.
for a fool's gold It was gold they never had Oh, the whiskey and the women Create a most deceptive blend You played your cards, now you can't go home again My name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.